can open to Ruth chapter 1. I wonder how many years you would have to go back before you could say that you would be surprised with where you are right now. I don't know if that question makes sense or not. It's the best way I could come up to word it. How many years would you have to go back to the point where you would be surprised with where the Lord has brought you to this point? For some of you, it might be as little as six months ago. You did not know that you would be living in the Black Hills. For me, it would be three years ago. I never had heard of Custer. I might have been able to tell you that Mount Rushmore was in South Dakota. I have a friend who came from Hawaii to California to Houston and came to the Black Hills, and he said he was surprised to find Mount Rushmore here because he thought it was one of the Washington monuments. (laughs) So I'm not alone. Some might have to go back much further, or maybe the surprises in your life have nothing to do with where you live. Maybe you've grown up in Custer, but the surprises, the unknowns that you never could have guessed were coming down the pike might include marriage, children, divorce, loss, job changes, and on and on. Here's what I'm driving at. We don't know what life might look like for us tomorrow. We don't know what life might look like for us next week or in a decade, but we do know that in every moment in the past, today, and tomorrow, that God is indeed faithful. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through the book of Ruth. Today we'll serve sort of an introduction Uh, Not much of an overview because we're going to walk through it, but an introduction to the book of Ruth. It's one of only two books in the Bible named after a a lady, and it's the only book in the Hebrew Bible named after someone who wasn't Jewish. There's lots of opinions as to why Ruth was written. Some have argued that it was, uh, you know, a plea for family responsibility Others have argued that it was a way to to try to create um, some unity, some racial unity between Jews and Gentiles. Others have argued that it's a, a story of personal faithfulness in dark days or an encouragement that God rewards wisdom or the influence of godly women. Others have said, you know what, Ruth is just nothing more than a beautiful story, and it is it is that. It is, there, there's hints of all of these in the text. But if we had to summarize the main point of Ruth, we, we might say it this way. It is the story of God's faithfulness in sovereignly working to bring a king into the world who will lead God's people into righteousness. God faithfully and sovereignly working to bring about a king into this world who will lead his people into righteousness. So then it's interesting that the story actually begins with an unfaithful or a faithless nation and a faithless family. So let's look at those in in turn before we turn to the faithfulness of God. We see first a faithless nation there in chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
The book opens by locating the events of Ruth in the time period of what we call the days in which the judges ruled. In fact, if you were to flip back, as Wayne mentioned earlier, you would find yourself in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is one of the the darkest, or the time of the Judges, one of the darkest periods in the nation of Israel. And like other occasions that we would say, man, this is a dark time in Israel's history, it's dark because God's people are in constant and persistent rebellion against Him. They are living in disobedience, and they are dealing with the results of their disobedience. The book of Judges follows the the time of Joshua where he had led the people across the Jordan River into the promised land and he had been told by the Lord to drive out all the inhabitants of the promised land. And Joshua did okay at that. He did not fully obey the Lord's command and the, the foreign nations then that remained would become a thorn in the flesh to Israel. And so after Joshua's death, It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or that which he had done for Israel. After the death of Joshua and the death of those who had walked in with Joshua, the very next generation did not know the Lord or all the works that he had done for Israel. It's hard to even imagine the level of failure in terms of parental discipleship and religious education that happened in Israel. And so they didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the works that he had done. And so not surprisingly, they turned to the gods of of the foreign nations that surrounded them. And they walked into Rebellion, worshiping idols and engaging in all types of sinfulness and rebellion. And so what we see in the book of Judges then is this this cycle, the cyclical pattern throughout the book of Judges where Israel rebels against the Lord. And so God, in, in keeping with the promises of the covenant, even some that we'll look at here in just a moment, in keeping with the promises of the covenant, gives his people over to one of those people, groups that surround them. And the, now Israel is oppressed and they cry out. That would be the third kind of step in this cycle. They cry out and the Lord raises up a deliverer, a judge who then frees the people of Israel, but it's not too long to where they're back in the cycle of rebellion, oppression, crying out, deliverer. We see it over and over and over in the book of Judges. So these these judges that are referred to there in chapter 1, verse 1, the ones who ruled in Israel were warrior-like deliverers, more than what we might think of a judge who's kind of slamming a gavel. They did have some some leadership, many of them, but they were more warrior-like deliverers. Men like Ehud, um, Samson, Gideon, or women like Deborah were raised up by God to overthrow those nations who had taken over Israel and to free his people. In fact, the rampant sin and rebellion in the book of Judges can be quite easily seen when you just think about even those deliverers, many of them, even the judges themselves, were very, very sinful. 
You think of Gideon who tested the Lord and did not believe the Lord. You know, you talk about, oh, you should just throw out your fleece. No, don't throw out your fleece. That was unbelief. Gideon was testing the Lord. We think of Samson who had his fair share of foolishness and sinfulness. So even the heroes in the book of Judges, not to our surprise, are less than examples to God's people. As you probably know, the book of Judges can be summed up with that phrase that's repeated, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you believe what the Bible says about us, that's not a good thing. When people are doing what is right in their own eyes, it leads to what you see in the book of Judges. So this is during a dark, dark time in the nation of Israel, and there is a famine in the land. In fact, this this famine is not as unrelated to Israel's sin as we might first assume. You know, weather patterns change, famines come and go, but this is no accident of the weather. This famine is actually the direct result of God's hand in light of Israel's lack of repentance and submission to the Lord. You see, last week, if you were here, and we were in uh, Proverbs 9, and it promises long life, if you come to Lady Wisdom, we alluded to these covenant blessings and curses. And if you, you're just a few books away. If you wanted to flip to Deuteronomy 28, you could. These covenant blessings and curses for the people of Israel. Now, this is the old covenant that God made with his people Israel. This covenant has come to an end in Christ. But in order to understand the book of Ruth, especially the section we're looking at this morning, we need to understand this covenant. Look there in verses 1 and 2. You see that there's blessings as a result of obedience when it comes to the old covenant. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commands that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. So there's these blessings for obedience. What might those include? Well, look at verse 8. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Again, verses 11 and 12. We're reading these because there's a famine in the land when we open the book of Ruth. Look in verse 11. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. That will become important for us in a moment. There's blessings for obedience But there's curses for disobedience. If you jump down to verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Again, there's 
curses here that are related to famine. Look down at verse 24. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From the heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So one of the curses of disobedience for Israel was famine. This famine in Ruth chapter 1 during the days of Judges is not an accident. This is God's discipline of His people. He has flipped on the warning switch. The warning light is blinking. He's calling His people to turn back to Him. Would would you come? Would you return to me? Would you walk in covenant obedience to me? And I will gladly pour out my blessings to you. So He's brought this to bring repentance in His people Israel. And this is a setting in which Ruth opens a faithless nation that is under the covenant curses of God. The people are in rebellion to their Lord. They have turned after idols and therefore they are experiencing these curses. Where at least Bethlehem, probably larger parts of Israel, are under a famine. But we know that, that the nations are made up of, of units of people like families. And so this narrative moves from the setting of Israel to this family, Elimelech, Naomi, Melon, and Kilion. And we see, I think we will see, uh, I think the text is leading us to see this, that uh, they too are swept up in the spirit of the age, that everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And they are, by and large, a faithless family. Let me read it to you, and then I'll try to demonstrate that from the text. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without the two sons and her husband." So in the midst of the famine, in a little town called Bethlehem, there is a family, and like this family, they are suffering under this famine. And I don't think any of us in this room probably know what it's like to be truly hungry. Maybe there are some. I don't want to deny the possibility there. But what a terrifying prospect to consider that you don't know where your next meal is going to come from or how you are going to feed your family. You know, we say we're starving when it's been four hours between lunch and dinner. We can't hardly fathom a famine. We saw what happened in our country when we thought that just maybe we might run out of toilet paper. So even though we're going to be somewhat critical of this family and point out areas of sin and rebellion. Know that we aren't then looking down on them from a position, a superior position. We are probably much more like Elimelech than we would dare to admit. This family lives in Bethlehem. You may know that Bethlehem is 
Hebrew for house of bread. So there's some irony here in the text. There is no bread in the house of bread. There's no food. They're in the midst of a famine. The author includes as well that this family is Ephrathites. This is either a reference to the geography that surrounded Bethlehem there or some kind of reference to a clan that had been in the area a long time. If you, if you think back to like Genesis 35, it speaks of Ephrath and then in parentheses, which is Bethlehem. So there's a good chance that, that Elimelech and his family have long, deep roots in Bethlehem. In fact, there's a lot of uh, commentators who would suggest that they were uh, distinguished in the city. When Naomi comes back later, she is uh, certainly recognized by her peers. So the current makeup of this family then is Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two children. I think all of their names sort of play, play a role in this story in some sense. You know, as we'll see next week, as we finish chapter 1 next week, Naomi makes it really clear that her name matters because she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Now, there's a little bit of foreshadowing with the kids' names. Malon means something like sickly, and Kilion means something like finished. And so I don't know if that's their real names or if that's sort of, I don't know who names their kid that, although there is, Kilion was a pretty common name, so maybe. So there, there is a little foreshadowing there with the kids. We're not surprised when they pass away. Perhaps Elimelech's name is the most ironic. His name means God is king or my God is king. And as we'll see, instead of relying on God as king or honoring God as king, Elimelech decides that he will do what is right in his eyes. He will lean on his own understanding. And we see that in his move to Moab. Now this sounds odd to us, right? Those who live under the new covenant, where the gospel has gone to all the nations and God has established his church and, and called us to gather together in local churches all over this globe. People are worshiping the Lord this morning. So it feels a little weird to say that Elimelech was in rebellion because he moved during a time of famine. You know, we as the church, we could, we could move. You know, there's unwise reasons to move. There's, there's wise reasons to stay at times. But by and large, you could move and you could serve Christ in a different city or a different part of the country. So it sounds a little bit weird for us because we could, we could do that and we could be pleasing and glorifying God. But we know with, uh, within this covenant, Israel was unique. He had freed them from Egypt and he had given them the land. And this land was the place of blessing. This land was the place of worship, the place where God would dwell among his people. So for Elimelech, under the Old Covenant, living in Bethlehem, the question was, will I stay where God has brought me into this land and trust Him to meet my needs as, as one of His faithful servants? 
Or maybe better, the question was, will I repent? Will I turn back to the Lord? Will I call my neighbors to repentance so the Lord might demonstrate his favor on the land and on his people? Or his other option is, will I take matters into my own hands and move outside of God's boundaries, away from the worship of the Lord? Remember, the, the Lord said, if you walk in obedience to me, back in Genesis 28, he said, if you walk in obedience to me, you will lend to other nations, and they will borrow from you. I will pour out my blessings so significantly that the other nations will be coming to Israel to, to loan food and treasure from you. So... For Elimelech, living under the Old Covenant to flee wasn't the way of faith. The proper response for him would have been self-examination and turning back to the Lord. But Elimelech does what is right in his own eyes. Instead of turning back to the Lord, he turns his back on the Lord in a sense and flees to Moab. The one named my God is king takes matters into his own hands. Not only does he flee, but he flees to uh, a long-term uh, enemy, a long-time foe of Israel, the Moabites. First, the, the Moabites were the descendants of uh, one of the daughters of Lot, who, were, who was impregnated through all kinds of debauchery and sinfulness and trickery. If you're tracking with me, that involved incest. So even the, the beginnings of the Moabite people were uh, sinful. Moab had established themselves as a long-time enemy of Israel. If you remember back to Numbers 22, the king of Moab, Balak, hired Balaam to curse Israel as a result of the, the Moabites' treatment of Israel. They were disbarred from the assembly of God's people in the book of Deuteronomy. Even in the time of Judges, right? We're, just, we're, we're in the time of Judges. Even in the book of Judges, Moab conquered Israel and was ruling over them under the tyrannical rule of King Eglon. You can read about that in Judges chapter 3. It's an interesting story about how he was actually killed. The Moabites were idolaters and they were engaged in all sorts of pagan Worship. So in a, you might say Elimelech is leaving the house of bread to go to Israel's enemies, Moab, the very people who denied Israel bread and water when they needed it in the book of Numbers. You know, they didn't likely intend to stay long. That word sojourn there in verse 1, that would, that would most likely imply that they just intended to sort of Go away, the, the famine will pass, and then you know what, we'll just, we'll just come back and everything will be good. But by the end of verse 2, it says they remained there. And over a decade later, Naomi is still there. So Elimelech has deceived himself and his family. It's, it's amazing how easily we might deceive ourselves 
We can convince ourselves that the only option is rebellion against the Lord to disobey. We can ignore the depth and the, and the reaches and the power of sin, and we think to ourselves, you know what, just one more. Or it'll just be a short stay in this lifestyle. Well, for Naomi and her family, it wasn't a short stay, and it was a stay that included deep, deep, and significant suffering. In fact, in verses 3 through 5, then the, the author sort of telescopes 10 years. It's, it's 10 years captured in just these few verses. In Hebrew, it consists of only 32 words that cover these three years, or these, no, these 10 years at least. And it's a, it's a difficult, difficult time for Naomi and her family. First, we see that Elimelech dies. What happens then is Naomi sort of, she's going to take center stage at this point. In, in, earlier in the text, it said that Naomi was Elimelech's wife. She was defined in relation to her husband. But now that, that order is flipped. Elimelech is her husband. She's moving into the center of this narrative. The boys are no longer called Elimelech's boys the way they were called Elimelech's boys earlier. They are Naomi's boys. And so Naomi loses her husband, and she remains with her two sons then. Right? And maybe there's a little hope there for her. As hard as it must have been for her to lose her husband, she had two boys to help provide for her, to help care for her, to help uh, meet her needs in her widowhood, which was a particularly difficult way to live in, in this period. And her sons... They even get married. In verse 4, they took Moabite wives. We find out in chapter 4 that Ruth married Malon, and Orpah then must have married Kilion. We aren't told exactly how Naomi felt about this, but we do know how she should have felt about this. I wonder if, if she knew that this was against God's covenant for her boys to marry foreign Wives, you could read about that again in Deuteronomy chapter seven. And this wasn't this wasn't a race thing. It wasn't forbidding interracial marriage. Some have understood Deuteronomy seven to be teaching that. If I understand the history of our church correctly, there have been people that have been church disciplined out of this church for slandering those who would find themselves in that very situation. So this isn't about interracial marriage. This is a religious issue. The foreign wives would worship foreign idols, and they would draw the heart of their husband away after these foreign idols. You know, you can think of Solomon, who married a bunch of ladies, and his heart was drawn away. He, was, he went after all their idols. So we don't know. We're not told what Naomi thought about this, but she should have stopped it from happening. She should have been grieved by her son's disregard for God's word and God's covenant. In fact, Deuteronomy 28:32 says, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. That's, that's one of the curses of the covenant. While your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. Maybe that's how Naomi felt. 
Maybe she just looked on and was helpless as she watched her boys disobey the Lord. Or maybe, maybe she was just happy that maybe she would have the opportunity to have grandbabies and, and that her and Elimelech's line could be passed on and could continue on. She wasn't going to be able to get married right away and have babies and pass on her line that way. And so there's a little bit of hope maybe for Naomi. And tragedy strikes again. Malon and Kilion die after Ten years of being married, they, they have no children. Again, we can picture Naomi's suffering here as she stands at the foot of the third grave, weeping, the third loved one that's now been lost. She has endured the death of her husband. She has now endured the death of both her sons. And we've seen in Luke how difficult that, that is. You know, it'd be... Nearly impossible at this point for Naomi to survive widowhood with no sons or husband to take care of her in a foreign land. No husband, no sons, no heir, no lineage to pass on, which again is hard for us to grasp the significance of that in ancient Israel. So it's no wonder that, that next week we'll see that Naomi wanted to change her name. Not, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. This has been a bitter season for her you know in some ways the book of Ruth is somewhat like Genesis in the sense that in Genesis you have this promise this promise that's given and then over and over and over the promise is threatened it's threatened by infertility it's threatened by famine it's threatened by death and you see that in Ruth although Ruth and Naomi had no idea that they would be in the line of Christ. But as readers, if we've read the Bible, which, which many of us have, this family doesn't know that they are in the line which God will use to, to bring King David into the world and then the son of David into the world. They don't know it, but we do. And, and so Ruth is sort of like Genesis in the sense that the promise is threatened. Naomi has no line here. Ruth is just her daughter-in-law, Moabite, at, at this point. And so the promise seems all but impossible. Will it fail? The promise of a ruler to sit on the throne as God's man who will lead his people into righteousness is threatened by disobedience. It's threatened by famine. It's threatened by death. What will happen now? Well, this this book's about more than just simply surviving. It's about God's faithfulness in the midst of all these things that should negate God's faithfulness, particularly rebellion. So point, last point this morning, a faithful God. There's another common refrain in the book of Judges, everyone did what is right in his own eyes as one. There's another common refrain, and it's, in those days... There was no king. In those days, there was no king. And that's probably why in our English Bibles, not only chronologically, but they put Ruth here in between Judges and 1 Samuel where Israel is going to get a king. You know, of course, first it's Saul, who is a failure as a king, but then they get King 
David. So there's, there's some sense in placing the book of Ruth here as a bridge between the book of Judges, where there is no king, and 1 Samuel, where Israel gets a king. More than that, a, a king in David that's going to point forward to the coming of Christ. And so as I read my Bible, and you may have picked up on this as I walked through Luke, I do enjoy pretending what it would be like to, to read this, this narrative for the first time and sort of, okay, how, how would a reader be feeling if they didn't know the end of the story? It's kind of fun to do that, but the truth is you can only do that once. <laughs> you can only read a book for the first time once. Remember, we had a teenager that came to Christ uh, several years ago, and he began reading his Bible, and I thought this was pretty perceptive. He said, you know, how does this thing end? <laughs> it, it, he, he at least picked up on, there's, there's an end to this thing. I want to know how it ends. You can only do that and be surprised once. We cannot read Ruth, then, without an eye towards the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth is part of this grand design of God where we get to look back and we get to see how he moved history by his sovereign hand toward the redemption of his people in Christ Jesus. So for those of us who have come to God through faith in Christ, we've come to love Jesus and his gospel, we delight in hearing about how God brought about the person of Jesus Christ, so that he might do the work of reconciling his people to God. One author said it this way, No detail of the lives of our loved ones is insignificant to those who love them. That is also true of Jesus. When we come by faith to love him, the details of his life, the story of his background, his family history, all come to have a new fascination for us. So Ruth zooms in on a moment of God's detailed preparation of the coming of the king. The story of an unfaithful family in some of the darkest days of Israel is actually one of the building blocks of God's sovereign will to bring about his plan of salvation. Ruth is, is an instance where we get to meet individual people. We learn their names and we learn their stories. And these people eventually become ancestors to King David and Christ himself. In fact, Ruth is one of only four women mentioned in Matthew's uh, genealogy that he opens his gospel with. And in Matthew's gospel, that's pointing us forward to the fact that if Ruth is in the lineage of Christ, surely Christ has come to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He has come for the nations, not just for Israel. What we see then is that God works in the book of Ruth. We see that God works in ways that astound us. If you had to write the script... Would it be Naomi that receives the blessing of a daughter-in-law? A woman who comes back and wants to be called bitter because the Lord has dealt bitterly with her. She's, I, I left full and I came back empty. Would she be the one to receive blessing if you were the one that was pinning history? Would Ruth, a Moabitess, a pagan, 
be the one that ends up being in the lineage of King David and of Christ. God works in ways that absolutely astound us. He works in ways that we could have never come up with in a thousand lifetimes. The, then I guess we could apply it this way then. The blueprints of God's plan are often hidden to us. The blueprints of God's plan are often hidden to us. You see, the, the final product where we are heading if you've come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, where we are heading in God's presence for all eternity, God will dwell among His people. Where we are heading is revealed to us in His Word. We know, we, we know the final design. But how God intends to get each one of us to this point, to sanctify us in the image of Christ, to take us home, to be in His presence, the details of God's blueprint are often hidden to us. The intricacies of his plan are unknown. The English poet and hymn writer William Cooper, it's, it's spelled like Cowper, but everybody I could find was saying Cooper, so I'm going with it. Paul will have an opinion on this and tell me what's right. He suffered much in his life. You know, he lost his mother at six years old, he had unbelievable fits of deep, deep depression. You, know, you probably will recognize most famously his song, There is a Fountain. But he wrote another song called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And in it he wrote this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. He moves in mysterious ways in the sense that he plants his footsteps in the sea. Of course, the problem with looking for footprints in the ocean is they don't stay. They're impossible to trace. And as finite creatures, we cannot trace the plan of an infinite and sovereign God. The only way we even know what God is up to in Naomi's life and in Ruth's life is that he's told it to us. He's revealed it to us in his word. So from our perspective, we might say, you know what, I think Naomi's right. She has had a bitter life. She does have a lot to complain about. And indeed, she has suffered much. But what she can't see is that in the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her complaining, God is preparing to fill her back up. She went away full, she came back empty, and God is going to bless Naomi. He's going to provide for her in so many different ways, including food and a grandbaby. And ultimately, through her daughter-in-law, Ruth, he's going to bless all the nations. Consider then the rest of William Cooper's hymn. I quoted the first verse earlier. How, how should we then respond to this mysterious providence? We can't always trace his hand, as I think Spurgeon said. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, 
and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God is his own interpreter. As we study the book of Ruth together in the coming weeks, and we consider the mercy and the blessing and the purposes and the sovereignty and the wisdom of God, I think Cooper gives us good counsel. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. You take courage in light of the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. So I wonder where you are at this morning. Are those dreaded clouds that Cooper wrote about hovering over your head? Are you wondering how all of this, whatever your circumstances are, how will this turn out? Are you discouraged over past sins, wondering if the Lord might actually ever use you for His glory and for His purposes? Are you fearful, then, of how quickly this culture is changing, some of which Wayne even prayed about this morning? You know, it's scary as a church that loves biblical counseling that there are laws being looked at even now in Canada, and it really, and there's a city council that's going to look at a law this week in West Lafayette, Indiana, that is wanting to charge counseling ministries $1,000 a day if they counsel that same-sex activity is sinful. So that can be scary. We can wonder, what is God up to? And the, the, the answer is, we don't have to know right now what God is up to in order to trust Him. We don't have to know right now what God is up to in order to trust Him. The real assurance is God's faithfulness. The real assurance is God's faithfulness and His character that He has revealed to us in His Word, not being able to know exactly what He's up to in every single moment. In fact, God is so faithful to His plan, and He is so good, and He is so sovereign that in verses 1 through 5, we even see the Lord using the actions of sinful people to accomplish His very will. Elimelech should not have gone to Moab. Malon and Kilian should not have married Ruth. But in God's good will, without him being the author and the first cause of man's sinful actions, God sovereignly orders all things, including sin, to his appointed end and according to his purpose. And there's no clearer example. If that if, if that sets you on your heels a little bit, how, there's no clearer example of this in Scripture than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most wicked event in world's history, and it brought about the purpose and plan of God for the good of the world. Once again, God was not responsible for Judas betraying Christ. It would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. He's not responsible for... In, uh, a moral sense for the soldiers mocking and beating Christ, for Pilate fearing the crowd above what he knew he should do, or the Romans nailing Christ to the cross. He's not the author of sin, yet at the same time, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before sin ever even entered into creation, God's plan was that Christ would be slain for our sins. It was his will and purpose. Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Lord in the sense that it was his will and his counsel. Not that he was giddy about it, but it pleased the Lord to crush him, 
It was His will from the beginning. So even wickedness and sin does not fall outside God's orchestration of history. And it serves His purposes. His purposes which are often mysterious to us. It is through then the, the darkest day in human history that God has made a way for you to come and know God through Christ. You might be forgiven of all of your sins. It is through the sacrificial death of Christ that was planned before the foundation of the world that you might know forgiveness and be reconciled to God. The son of David, the son of Ruth, Jesus Christ would be the very one to offer salvation this morning. God uses the most wicked day to create the greatest good. And even on that day, in the days that followed, confusion abounded among God's people. We thought He was the Messiah. We thought He was the Deliverer. What on earth is going on? And when all seemed as if it was dark, when it seemed as if death and sin had prevailed, when Jesus lay in the grave, God was working His purposes, ready to resurrect His Son from the grave and declare to the world that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and offers salvation to those who would turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God can use wickedness and does in His sovereignty and in His providence, we can take courage. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. Let's pray. Lord, we are fearful at times, and we ought to fear you. We ought to draw near to you in holy reverence, knowing that even when we can't trace your hand, as one preacher said, we can trust your heart. So Lord, help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.